The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. So glad, so glad to be here with you tonight and uh, excited because uh, I love San Diego. I'm from Denver. I live in Denver, but my wife and I have been coming to San Diego for 32 years. It's our default uh, location for vacation. We love the food here. We love the beaches here. We love your zoo. We just love everything about San Diego. And uh, I had the privilege of going to Maranatha about a year ago and uh, just fell in love with this church because you believe in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You believe in it. You believe that the gospel changes everything. You know that ultimately what's going to change this nation is not politics. It's not education. It's not religion. It is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You believe as a church in what Paul writes in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The power of the gospel changes everything. Change everything for me uh, and my entire inner city family. Matter of fact, I recently wrote a book called Unlikely Fighter, and an unlikely fighter, the tagline is the story of how a fatherless street kid overcame violence, chaos, and confusion to become a radical Christ follower. It's 22 chapters long. The first 21 chapters happened before I turned 16 years of age. And this book demonstrates in graphic detail that the gospel changes everything. See, it changed it for my family. I don't come from a typical religious, church-going, pew-sitting, hymn-singing family. I come from a family filled with bodybuilding, tobacco-chewing, beer-drinking thugs. And that's just the women, sadly. <laughs> Three of my uncles were competitive bodybuilders. The fourth one was a bouncer at the toughest bar in Denver. The fifth one was a Golden Gloves boxer, judo champion, and war hero. Right? There's a, den there's a mafia uh, branch in Denver called the Small Dones. The Small Dones, the mafia, had a nickname for my uncles. They called them the Crazy Brothers. So when the mafia thinks your family is dysfunctional, that's not good, right? That was my family. The mafia was organized crime. My family was disorganized crime. And I was just a terrified little kid in North Denver. I was like young Sheldon in the hood. I was a nerdy little kid wondering how in the world I got into this crazy family. But the craziest one of all my family members was my Uncle Jack. I think we got a picture of my Uncle Jack. That's my Uncle Jack. He kind of looks like the Wolverine, right? He only weighs 185 pounds in that picture and eight. 85 of those pounds are in that bicep that he is admiring right there. In and out of jail his whole life, once for choking two cops unconscious at the same time. He was a very bad man. He was a very dangerous man. Spent a lot of his time in jail. But then one day, a hillbilly preacher, whose nickname for some reason was Yankee, planted a church in the suburbs of Denver and there was a guy who was a Christian that went to his church. The guy's name was Bob Daly. And Bob Daly knew my Uncle Jack, but Bob Daly was too afraid to share the gospel with my Uncle Jack. So he dared Yankee. And Yankee was fearless. So he went to my Uncle Jack's house on a dare from Bob Daly on a Saturday morning and knocked on his door. Jack came to the door, no shirt on, tats everywhere. 
two beer cans, one for drinking beer, one for spit and chew. He didn't want to get those mixed up. My Uncle Jack talked like this. He goes, what do you want? Yankee said, I'm here on a dare from Bob Daly to tell you about Jesus. He goes, well, I don't know Jesus. I know Bob. I'll give you five minutes. Invited him in. They sat down at the kitchen table, and Yankee explained the gospel to my Uncle Jack. Not religion, but a relationship with Christ. That Jesus came to die for sinners just like Jack. He'd never heard the gospel. My Uncle Jack had never heard the gospel so clearly. And sitting at the kitchen table, after explaining the gospel, Yankee looks at Jack and says, does that make sense? He said, hell yeah. That was a sinner's prayer was, hell yeah. <laughs> and have you ever met a new believer that doesn't know the rules yet about loving your enemies? That was Jack because he started telling others about Jesus. And if they didn't take Jesus, he may give them Moses right upside their head. <laughs> One day he's in a sauna sharing the gospel with another bodybuilder. Now in a sauna, you have no clothes on. This is naked evangelism, right? He's sharing the gospel with this other nude bodybuilder and going through the gospel. But there's another guy in the sauna from a different religion. And he starts to interrupt my Uncle Jack and argue with him. My Uncle Jack doesn't know yet you're supposed to love your enemies. So he turns to him and he goes, hey, I'm trying to tell this guy about the love of Jesus. Why don't you shut your stinking mouth? He continued to share the gospel. The guy interrupted again. He goes, you, you interrupt me one more time. I'm taking you out. He continued to share the gospel. The guy interrupted again. Boom, Jack hits this guy. The guy fell to the ground, looked up and says, Jesus didn't go around hitting people like that. He goes, well, I ain't Jesus. I'm Jack. Did not know the rules yet about loving your enemies. Let me just tell you, though, Jack began to become transformed by the power of the gospel. Jack brought 250 people out to Yankees Church in one month. No joke. One month. He brought street fighters and bodybuilders and powerlifters and gang members because he wanted everyone to know the good news of Jesus one by one by one. My family was transformed because of one very unlikely preacher, a hillbilly nicknamed Yankee. I want to tell you this. God loves to use the unlikely. God loves to use those who are unlikely to accomplish his will. Matter of fact, when I think of unlikely, I think of Yankee, but I think also of an Old Testament character named David. Young David. Here's this young man, David, who is called by his father to be an unlikely fighter. He sends him to the battlefield to deliver cheese and crackers to his older brothers in the war. And while he's there, he overhears a giant named Goliath. Goliath is nine foot, nine inches tall. And for 40 days, every morning and every night, he comes out and he taunts the Israelites to send out their best fighter to fight him. And every one of the Israelite soldiers, whenever they see this nine foot, nine inch giant, they run away. But David overhears him. And he's like, I'll fight the dude. This is a loose translation of the Hebrew. I'll fight him. They take him to Saul. Saul tries putting his armor on him, but he's kind of clanking around. He goes, I can't go like this. I'm not used to this armor. I'm going like God made me. I'm a shepherd. And he goes to the creek, and he gets five smooth stones. He puts them in his bag. He's got a stick. He's got a sling. And he goes out to face this giant. 
And the giant sees this kid with the stick and he's insulted. He says, what am I, a dog? Did you come at me with sticks? Come here, kid. Today, I'm gonna give your carcass to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. And that's when David delivers the best Old Testament comeback. He tells Goliath, you come against me with a spear and a sword and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. Today, I'm gonna kill you. I'm going to cut off your head, and I'm going to give the carcasses of the entire Philistine army to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. And this day, the world will know there is a God in Israel. Let's get it on. He didn't say that last part, but he should have. <laughs> and he reaches in his bag, and he pulls out a stone. He runs toward the giant. He swings that sling, and he throws that stone. That stone hurtles through the air and goes, drills through Goliath's giant skull. He dies standing on his feet and falls to the ground. And God accomplishes a mighty victory through an unlikely fighter that day. Let me tell you, God loves to use unlikely fighters. As a matter of fact, I'm going to make my point for tonight's sermon. And I want you to remember this. It's simple. God uses unlikely fighters to face unbeatable giants so he can accomplish an unimaginable victory. God uses unlikely fighters. Let's kind of break this down. Let's talk about unlikely fighters. The Bible is full of unlikely fighters. God used a novice boat builder named Noah, an elderly patriarch named Abraham, a stuttering shepherd named Moses, a teen queen named Esther, a confident senior citizen named Caleb, a God-fearing prostitute named Rahab, a young dreamer named Daniel, a fig-picking prophet named Amos, a girl-crazy warrior named Samson, a prejudiced preacher named Jonah, a determined cupbearer named Nehemiah, a cricket-eating, camel-fur-wearing, water-drenched madman named John the Baptist. God loves to use the unlikely. David was unlikely. He was too unknown. Nobody knew who he was. He was a shepherd out in the fields with the sheep. He was too inexperienced. He was a shepherd, not a soldier. He was a worshiper, not a warrior. He was too young. He was the youngest of eight, and only the three oldest brothers were old enough to fight in the war. You had to be 20 years old or older to fight in the war. So I'm guessing David was probably around the age of 14 or 15 years of age when he fought Goliath. And let me just pause just for a moment. Let me just pause for a moment. I want to make a case for the most unlikely in the church. That is teenagers. I work with a ministry called Dare to Share. We train and equip teenagers. We've equipped over the last 31 years millions of teenagers across the United States and around the world to share the gospel. And we focus on young people for a reason. God loves to use the unlikely. Do you know that in the, the last 300 years, every major spiritual awakening in the United States has happened with teenagers on the leading edge? God loves to use the young ones, teenagers. He used David, a teenager in the Old Testament. He used the disciples in the New Testament. Did you know that most of the disciples were probably teenagers when they began to follow Christ? If you look in Matthew 17, 24 through 27, all the disciples go to Capernaum, but only Peter and Jesus pay the temple tax. If you cross-reference that with Exodus chapter 30, verse 14, the temple tax is, is only for those 20, year old, 20 years old and older. All the disciples are there, but only Peter and Jesus pay. If I'm reading that right, Jesus was a youth leader with one adult volunteer. 
and one rotten kid named Judas and no budget. And with that youth ministry, he changed the world. That's why one of the things I love about Maranatha, you guys believe in the power of the gospel and the potential of young people. Can I get an amen? That's why you have this Christian school. That's why you have a youth ministry that's passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must mobilize this next generation with the gospel of Christ. David was an unlikely fighter. And I was too. I did not fit into my family. I'm this nerdy little kid in inner city Denver with all these street fighting uncles and cousins and aunts. And I did not fit in. Matter of fact, I'll never forget an incident. You know those childhood moments that mark you. Is that a family gathering on Christmas and we were all celebrating Christmas and I have a huge family. My uncles and aunts were there, my cousins, everybody was there. We're just wrapping up, you know, unwrapping our presents, about to go to lunch. My Uncle David says, wait a minute. Now, you got to understand about my Uncle David. My Uncle David was a Golden Gloves boxer, judo champion, and war hero. He had five bullet holes in his body and a five-inch bayonet scar. He not only survived, he killed the guy that gave it to him. He's a man's man. And he said, wait a minute. I have one more present before we dismiss for lunch. It's for little Greg. I'm six years old at the time. I'm standing in the corner. He's across the room. Everybody's like, go get your present. And I'd never been called out like this. I'm walking across the room with, you know, six-year-old swagger because I'd been noticed. My Uncle Dave gives me the present. Everybody goes, open it up. I open it up, and it's a girl's doll. And I think it's a mistake. I go, it's a girl's doll. He goes, yeah, I figured you don't have a dad. So you like to play with dolls like a little girl. I snapped. I shoved that doll in the stomach. I go, I ain't no girl. And I walked back to my corner. And all my uncles were like, you see the temper on him? Maybe he's one of us after all. Let me tell you something. That moment, that moment, I knew what my giant was. My battle was going to be a battle for identity. I knew in that moment I would be an unlikely fighter. And I want to say this, you are an unlikely fighter too. And God loves to use unlikely fighters. God specializes in the unlikely. If you feel unusable, God can use you. If you feel like you're not special, God has a special place for you. If you feel too poor or too weak or too sinful or too unpopular or too whatever, he's more than too excited to use you. Why? Because when he does, he will receive maximum glory. God uses unlikely fighters to face unbeatable giants. Now, David's giants seemed unbeatable. I think we can all agree on that. 1 Samuel 17, 4, a champion named Goliath who was from Gath came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. Let me translate that. He was nine foot nine inches tall. He'd make Shaq look like a toddler. He couldn't play basketball because he'd get his head stuck in the net. And he was a champion, which means he had killed hundreds, if not thousands, over the course of war. He seemed unbeatable. 
And the giants we face, the giants that you are facing right now may seem unbeatable. This morning, I want you to start thinking about what is that unbeatable giant that you are facing right now in your life? Maybe it's an illness, a financial crisis, a strained marriage, a wayward son or daughter, a job that you hate, an addiction that you can't seem to break, a sin that you cannot overcome. Tonight, I'm going to ask you, will you name your giant? In the quietness of your soul, will you name what is that giant, what is that Goliath that you are facing right now? Why name it? Because you cannot crucify what you refuse to identify. Maybe it's a giant sin in your life. Maybe it's porn or alcohol or drugs, sin of gossip, slander, bitterness. Romans 6.12 reminds us, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not let that giant win in your life. Maybe it's a giant problem in your marriage. Maybe you got in a fight with your spouse on the way here tonight. I know that never happens in a church like this. It happened to me 25 years ago or so when I was pastoring Grace Church in Denver, Colorado, and I was leading Dare to Share, and I was busy, and I was gone a lot. My wife and I were in the car on the way to a Bible study. I'm the pastor of the church, and we get in a raging argument. We're sitting in the car, and we got to go in. I'm like, let's go in. We got to go in. Put on a happy face. She was not happy. So we go into the Bible study. Thank the Lord I'm not leading the Bible study that night. Pastor Green, the associate pastor, is. And we're in the big Bible study circle. And Pastor Green, of all the nights, says, you know what? Instead of going through our Bible study tonight, let's just go around the circle. And let's open up our lives and our marriages and let's get real and raw and let's pray for each other. I'm like, oh no, oh no. So he starts going around the room and everybody's sharing. And he gets to me, then my wife is next. He says, how's it going, Pastor Steer? I'm like, you know, pray for us. I've been busy a lot with Dare to Share, traveling, doing these conferences with the church, a lot of pressure, a lot of responsibility, and I'm trying to really find out that ministry life balance. I am spinning it like a politician, right? And he gets to my wife, and you got to know my wife to appreciate this. My wife is the sweetest person on the planet. She's got no natural predators. She has been uh, at the same public school as a fifth grade teacher for the last 28 years. She's well-respected in our city because she loves people so much. But she's also a redhead, and she had had enough. And Pastor Green gets to Debbie and goes, how's it going, Debbie? She goes, not good. And everybody looked up. He says, what's going on? She goes, my husband is gone every weekend. He's gone every night. When he is at home, he's just so tired. He's got nothing left emotionally for me. I can't take it. I can't fake it anymore. My husband's a jerk. And I'm like, you want to do this right now in front of God and everyone? Well, let's get it on. And so we start arguing. Now, everybody in the Bible study thinks it's a skit. It is not a skit. And we are going at each other, just arguing. 
And Pastor Green interrupts. He makes the mistake of interrupting me. He'd been ticking me off in staff meeting. This was the final straw. He goes, let me tell you something, Pastor Steer. I don't care if you reach the world for Christ. If you don't take care of business at home, you're nothing. If you give pastor the largest church in the world, if you don't take care of business at home, you're nothing. And I go, yeah, you may be right. And I stood up. I go, but I'm about to take you out. Whoa. And I changed. I mean, I literally ran across the room, which was another awkward Bible study moment. People want to get popcorn at this moment, wondering what in the world is happening. And I am just going to, I figured I sinned. I'm going out with style, right? I'm going to take him out. And right in the middle of the room, I hit my giant. It was like a punch to my solar plexus. It was like the Holy Spirit stood there and threw me to the ground. And I fell to the ground and I began to weep because I knew he was right and she was right. And I was sinning. And I wept for 30 minutes. And I could not capture my breath. Which was another awkward Bible study moment. Because nobody knew what to do. Because I was their pastor. They're like, do we call the Catholics in? Is this a priest situation? Exorcism? We don't know. They prayed over me. I could not stop crying. It was the most humiliating moment of my life. And it saved my marriage. Because now everybody knew. Everybody knew what my giant was. I tied it in with my sermon the next Sunday. Perhaps you heard through the prayer chain about my meltdown. Everybody's like, amen. They all had heard. Thank the Lord for a church with older, mature, godly couples that took us under their wing and counseled us and encouraged us and restored our marriage. By the way, we've been married now for 32 years. And I love my wife, and she loves me. But I had to face that giant. And I want to challenge you tonight to face your giant just like David faced his giant on that battlefield. God uses unlikely fighters to face unbeatable giants so he can accomplish an unimaginable victory. That unimaginable victory that comes through his name. You know, in North Denver, my last name's Steer, but my family's last name was Matthias. And in North Denver at the time, the highest crime rate area of our city, every city's got a city within the city. San Diego's got a city within the city, the high crime rate area. Denver's got a city within a city. And in that city, uh, the, the North Denver, let me just tell you, the name Matthias was held in high regard. And kids would mess with me until they realized I was acquainted with that name, the Matthias name. There's something about a name. This is what David said to Goliath. You come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Listen, we have an unbeatable giant, but we come against those giants with a name. And that name is the name of Jesus. And that name is the name of victory. We have an unimaginable victory that comes through his name and that flowed from his shame. Hebrews 12, 2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
on the cross as Jesus hung naked and twisted and dying, shamed before a mocking crowd. He was paying the price for our sin. He was defeating the ultimate giant. This, and I want you to get this, this is the unlikely twist in the story of David and Goliath. See, really, the story of David and Goliath can motivate us to face our giants, but ultimately, that's not what it's about. Here's the twist. This story really reflects a bigger story. David fought Goliath 3,000 years ago, but 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the son of David, faced the ultimate giant, not in the valley of Elah like the Israelites, but on a hill called Calvary. And it was a showdown with sin. And on that cross, Jesus died, was shamed on the cross, and he screamed out the words, it is finished, because in that moment, he had paid the price for all the sin of humanity, the wrath of the Father, the anger of the Father towards sin on everyone was poured out instead on Jesus, and Jesus paid the price in our place for our sin, and there was an earthquake, and the sky turned black, and the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom because now we had free access to God, the unimaginable victory that comes through his shame, that flows through his shame is now ours if we receive it. Have you received it? That unimaginable victory that Jesus purchased, the son of David, who defeated the ultimate giant. Oh, how I wish my ma would have experienced that. I wanted my mother to experience that, that grace, that power, that forgiveness. I love this picture of my ma because she got a smile, but she got a smirk. You see the smirk? She got five bodybuilding brothers that were all afraid of her because she knew how to fight. Ma had been in and out of relationships, married several times. One day, I was five years old, I was on the front porch playing with a plastic bat. And a guy pulls up in a car, brand new car. And I look, and it was a guy that she had married months earlier that had left us. We had no idea where he was. He was gone. We had no idea where he had went. Just abandoned us. I yelled inside, Mommy, Mommy, one of my daddies is here. She's smoking a cigarette, doing the dishes. She looks out the window. She goes, Paul, that blank and blank, blank. Where's the baseball bat? I had a plastic bat. I go, here, Mommy. She didn't want the plastic bat. She wanted the Louisville slugger, right? She reaches behind the door, grabs the bat, cigarette still hanging out of her mouth, and goes charging out the door, cursing like a sailor. He's still sitting in the car when she knocks through his front windshield. Then she takes out his headlights. Then she knocks off his side view mirror. Then she starts doing body damage on the car. In between, she's daring him, get out of the car. I'm just a girl. Come on, get out of the car. And she's denning this car. And I am traumatized because I'm six. At the same time, I'm kind of proud of my mom. I'm like, you go, mom, you go. Because she is wailing on this car. And then he makes a tactical mistake. He gets out of the car. And mom beat him bloody. And finally, he limped to the car, and for some strange reason, we never saw him again as he drove off. And I'll never forget my mom walking back up the sidewalk 
with this broken, bloodied, splintered bat, thinking to myself three things. One, I will never disobey my mommy again, ever. Two, how did the cigarette stay in her mouth the whole time? And three, why is my mommy so angry? I found out when I was 12 why. My ma had a shame-fueled rage. My grandmother set me down. She goes, I want to tell you what happened with your ma. Your mom met a guy named Tony at a party. They partied. She got pregnant. He found out. He got transferred. He was in the army. Got transferred from Denver to Atlanta. He didn't want to have anything to do with you or your mom. Your mom did not want to tell me and your, your granddad what had happened. So she got in the car and she drove from Denver to Boston to stay with your Uncle Tommy and your Aunt Carol but really, she was there to have an illegal abortion. She was going to abort you. This was before Roe v. Wade. She went there to have an abortion. Well, they, after a couple months, were able to talk her out of it. And she came back in shame. And she had you. Then it clicked. I knew why, for the first time, when my mom would look at me, she'd often burst out in tears. I knew why I could hear my mom through our trailer court thin walls or our apartment walls crying almost every night because she almost took my life. She felt so guilty. But by this time, I'm 12 years old. I was going to Yankees church and Yankee believed in the power of the gospel and the potential of teenagers. And he trained us teenagers how to share the gospel. And I learned how to share the gospel. And he said, I want you to think about one person you want to reach. You know what? One person I wanted to reach, I want to reach my mom. And I went back and I began to share the gospel with her. And she would say, you don't know the things I've done wrong. Oh, I knew them all because grandma had told me everything. <laughs> I said, it doesn't matter, mom. Jesus died on the cross. She said, I'm too much of a sinner. I told her week after week, month after month, year after year. When I was 15 years old, I sat her down one last time. I said, Ma, I want you to listen to every word coming out of my mouth. Because I don't want you to go to hell, and I'm tired of you living through this hell. Listen to me. She goes, okay, tell me again. She's smoking a cigarette. I explained the gospel. She goes, you mean to tell me Jesus died for all my sins? I go, yeah. She took a drag. She goes, you mean to tell me all I have to do is put my faith in him and he forgives me for everything? I go, that's what he said. I tell you the truth. You trust in me, he said. I'll give you everlasting life. She took another drag. She goes, I'm in. My mom in that moment put her faith in Jesus Christ. My mom in that moment was saved. My mom in that moment knew for the first time hope, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of the victory that flowed through Christ's shame on the cross in her place for her sin. 18 years ago, my mom died, went to be with the Lord. Somebody didn't know that she had died. They asked me, how's your mom? I go, oh man, she's in greatest shape of her life, stopped smoking, singing night and day, she's dead and she's in heaven. They're like, oh, I don't know what to say to that, right? 
but she is doing great because she's in the presence of God. Amen. I want to talk to you tonight. I'm not, I'm not done with my sermon, but I want to talk. I want to pause right now. Because some of you came in this room tonight and you, you don't know for sure where you stand with God. You don't know for sure you're going to go to heaven when you die. You don't know for sure your sins are forgiven. I want to share with you the same illustration that Yankee shared with my Uncle Jack that I shared with my mom. It's a simple illustration that will help you understand the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Pretend like this hand is you and me and everyone in the world. Pretend like this phone is our sin. And it's an Apple phone, so it's perfect because there's a half-bitten apple on it, which represents a forbidden fruit, right? Some of you Android users are like, I knew it! I knew it! Anyway, uh, this hand is God, right? Now, God, he loves us. God created us to be in a relationship with him. He loves you so much. But our sins, and we all sin, our sins separate us from God. He's a perfect and holy God. As a result of our sin that we have, we're condemned to die in hell forever. Now, some people say, well, if you live a good life and go to church and obey the Ten Commandments, and maybe you'll make it in, but it just covers it up. Our good deeds are like putting white frosting on a burnt cake. We're all condemned to hell. There's nothing we can do about it. But 2,000 years ago, God sent his son Jesus into this world, and Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live, and he died in our place for our sin. He took all of our sin, past, present, and future, upon himself. He died in our place for our sin, and he rose from the dead without that sin, victorious. And now he says, if you simply trust in him, if you believe he died for you and trust in him alone to forgive you for those sins, he will give you everlasting life. And that life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. It is a personal, permanent relationship with the God of the universe that can never be broken by you and will never be broken by him. And tonight, if you put your faith in Jesus, you receive that gift of eternal life. And it's not just a ticket to heaven. It's a new identity. You get new belonging. You get new purpose. You get identity as a child of God. You get belonging with the people of God. You get purpose in the mission of God. You get life. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full, an abundant life, but you have to receive it through faith. And if you've not done that, then tonight is your night. Again, we're not yet done with the sermon, but we're going to pause right now. I'm going to have you bow your head and close your eyes. Every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. If you came here tonight and you don't know for sure you have eternal life, you don't know for sure your sins are forgiven, you can know it right now. Look to the cross. The victory that comes through his shame. If you're ready to receive that free gift of eternal life, just say this silent prayer in your soul right now to God. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't be good enough to earn my way into your presence. I know I'm bound for hell. But I believe that Jesus died in my place for my sin. And I believe he rose from the dead. And I trust in him right now to give me the gift of eternal life. I receive it through faith right now. 
with heads bowed, eyes closed, no one looking around, if tonight, for the very first time, that message made sense and you put your faith in Jesus, you are saved. Not because you said a prayer, but because you trusted in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, if that made sense to you tonight and you're trusting in Jesus tonight for the first time, it clicked. Can you simply raise up your hand and put it right back down? God bless you. Anybody else? I'm trusting in Jesus right now. God bless you. Anyone else? Just raise up your hand and put it right back down. God bless you. God bless you. Everyone look up. Let's give God a hand for bringing these four from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. And at the end of the service, we're going to give you some next steps to help you grow in this relationship with God. Listen, welcome to the family of God. Believers, let me ask you this. You've put your faith in Jesus, but are you still living under the weight of that shame of sins committed in the past? the unimaginable victory that comes through his name that flows from his shame and the results in his fame. Why did David kill Goliath? He gives us the answer in 1 Samuel 17, 46, so that the world will know there is a God in Israel. When we experience the power of God in defeating our giants, we can't help but tell others. When David killed Goliath, he knew that everyone in that early world would be talking about the God of a shepherd boy. It was Old Testament evangelism. And in the same way that that they shared that unimaginable victory of a shepherd boy and the true and living God, we must share our unimaginable victory. We must share the gospel. And in just a few moments, I'm going to give you a simple way to share that unimaginable victory with others a simple way to share your faith. But first, I want to tell you the story of a guy named Doug. Doug came from a broken family as a young man. His life was a mess. He was made fun of a lot because he had learning disabilities. But back then, they would just call you dumb. To add insult to injury, Doug had epilepsy. He could have a grand mal seizure any time of the day or night, and kids from his inner city family, or his inner city area, were ruthless to Doug. But Doug was no whip. He started to fight back with his fist. He started in high school getting expelled from high school, started getting in trouble with the law. His life was in a downward spiral. But then one day, he had an encounter with Jesus, and everything changed. And I remember the change in Doug because Doug wanted to share the unimaginable victory of his giant falling with everyone. And Doug, he would literally just go up to people walking on the street and start sharing the gospel with them. But he had such a smile on his face that people would listen. One day early on a Saturday morning, he goes, let's go tell somebody about Jesus. I'm like, it's kind of early. He goes, people need Jesus. I'm like, let's go. So we go out looking for somebody. We can't find anybody. He's like, where is everyone? I go, they're still in bed. (laughs) We go to a park, and we see about 100 yards away, there's a little park, a little play area. There's a jungle gym. There looks to be an eight-year-old boy on the jungle gym, and Doug's like, there's one. And he starts running at this kid, screaming, hey, kid, where are you going to go when you die? And the kid was terrified. He goes home and ran as fast as he could. 
Doug came back all dejected. I go, Doug, you scared that kid to death. He goes, I didn't mean to scare that kid. I just want that kid to know Jesus. Doug saved up his money, bought a bicycle, took that bicycle all over the city streets of Denver doing drive-by evangelism. One day he pulled up to a car at a stoplight, car full of guys. He thinks they need Jesus. He knocks on their window. They roll down the window. He begins to share the gospel in traffic. The light turns green halfway through his gospel presentation. They said, we got to go. He says, well, I'm not done yet, so go ahead and go. Holds onto the handle. The car takes off 10, 20, 30, 45 miles an hour. Doug's balancing himself. Finally gets through with the gospel. He goes, I hope you believe. And he peels off to safety. Later on, he tells me the story. I go, Doug, you're an idiot. You could have got sucked under the tires, run over, and killed. He goes, it'd be worth it. It'd be worth it for those guys to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doug finally graduated from high school at the age of 19 or 20. Went to a Perkins restaurant to celebrate. Saw a very cute server. But he had a strict, I will not date an unbeliever policy. So he led her to Christ on the spot and then asked her out. She said yes. They go out. I think it was their first date. He's like, this is going really well. We should marry. She thinks he's joking. He's not. Six months later, they got married. They moved from Denver to Ankeny, Iowa, where Doug became a custodian at a public school. For 30 years, Doug stripped and waxed the floors. For 30 years, Doug would sing Christian songs in the hallways of this public school. For 30 years, he'd tell the kids about Jesus. He'd tell the teachers about Jesus. He'd tell the administrators about Jesus. And when the administrators would say, listen, this is a public school, proselytizing is prohibited. He would think to himself, I have no idea what the word proselytizing means. And prohibited sounds encouraged. It prohibited. So whatever it is, I'm going to keep doing it. A couple years ago, he got a form of dementia. And Doug had to retire early because he started forgetting stuff. But one thing he has not forgotten is Jesus. Because at least once a week, I get a call from Doug. And oftentimes, he tells me the latest story of the latest person he's led to Jesus. And in a day of judgment, when Doug's name is called, there will be thousands who stand and applaud, whose lives were impacted, whose lives were changed. And I'll be one of them. Because Doug's my big brother. He's seven years older than me. He watched my back in inner city Denver. He had every reason to keep his mouth shut, but he refused. And he refuses to be excused. He's the most unlikely fighter I know. He's the reason I'm doing Dare to Share today. Because I knew if my big brother could do it, I could do it. And I know if I can do it, you can do it. That unimaginable victory that comes through his name, that flowed from Christ's shame, that results in his fame. Will you make Jesus famous? Will you share the gospel? Now, please don't go up to a car in traffic 
And don't chase a kid down at the park. But will you start with that one person God has placed on your heart who does not know Jesus? That one person, the Spirit of God, is churning in your heart right now that desperately needs Christ. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a son or daughter. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a cousin. Who is that one person you need to reach? And I told you at the end of my talk, I'd give you a simple way to do this. Listen, I wrote the book, Unlikely Fighter, for a reason. I wrote the book, actually, for two reasons. I wrote Unlikely Fighter so that you could read it and be encouraged. It is packed full of family stories that I don't have time to go into detail during a 45-minute sermon, but you'll get all the stories. It's like an action book. I mean, an action movie put to pen. I wrote it to encourage you as believers to live your faith, to share your faith, to show you the power of the gospel. But the second reason I wrote it is so it can be a tool for you to use to pass on to somebody else who doesn't know Jesus. A simple way to say, read this book. I just read it. Read this book and let me know what you think. And get into a gospel conversation as a result. We have these books available in the lobby right after. I'll be glad to sign up for you. It's $15 for the first one, $10 for every book. After that, every dollar and every dime goes to mobilize more students for the gospel. I don't take any of it. Every book you buy helps me mobilize another teen to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've seen God use this book powerfully. I think of Dan in Portland. Dan, he bought two boxes of books because he wanted to give one to every single one of his employees. And he's seeing God doing amazing things as a result. I think of Mackenzie, who actually works at Dare to Share. Her and her mom have been praying for 25 years for her dad to come to Christ. She gave him the Unlikely Fighter book. He wrote, read it over the weekend. She asked him on Monday, did that make sense? He goes, yeah, I put my faith in Christ. I didn't know it was so simple. His life has been transformed. I think of Kathleen. Kathleen... Her daughter gave her this book. She read it, put her faith in Christ, and was baptized. She's 94 years old. Talk about cutting it close, but she's in. She put her faith in Christ. This could be a tool you use as Christmas gifts, but it's a tool that will advance the gospel. So I encourage you, stop by the booth on the way out. Get some books. Use them as outreach tools. Let those gospel conversations flow. And again, I'll be back there. Be happy to sign the books for you. But when it comes to your giant, take it from an unlikely fighter. That giant is already defeated through Christ, the son of David. Choose to walk in that victory from now on and let everybody know the victory that you have experienced through Jesus Christ. God uses unlikely fighters to face unbeatable giants so that he can accomplish an unimaginable victory. I want to pray for you now. I'm going to ask, though, that you keep your eyes open because I want to look in your eyes as I pray for you. Father, I pray for every one of these believers. Lord, would you fill them with your Holy Spirit? Would you fuel them with your mission? Would you use them to reach that friend, that neighbor, that family member, that son, that daughter with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may they know that through Jesus Christ shed blood and resurrection, they have victory, that their giant has fallen. And may they share that unimaginable victory with everyone they meet. 
Lord, use them as they leave here to be missionaries in their own neighborhoods, at their jobs, in their workplace, with their friends. And Lord, may they bring those new believers out to this church so that they can grow in you. Thank you for the unimaginable victory we have through your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's children said, amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.